streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store. You're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. For the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth, folks. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the show where we sit down with some of the most interesting people I can find and learn a little bit about their world. This week, I sat down with author James Kennedy to talk about his book, Dare to Know, and we had a fabulous conversation that goes from the book itself to the distrust of technology to the exquisite nature of loneliness and so much more. By the time you hear this, the book will have hit shelves, courtesy of Quirk Books, and you can pick it up on Amazon or at uh, fine booksellers everywhere. Of course, if you want to hear the show uninterrupted by ads, head on over to patreon.com slash largelythetruth, where $2 a month gets you access to an ad-free feed and bonus conversations when available. All right, time now to reach out to Mr. James Kennedy, author of Dare to Know. My guest tonight is a man of many talents. He is a curator of the 92nd Newbury Film Festival, co-host of the Secrets of Story podcast, and author of two books, the latest of which, Dare to Know, has just arrived on shelves from Quirk Books. He is James Kennedy. James, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thank you so much for having me on, Brennan. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, I think you're actually the first author I've spoken to on the show. I, one guy I'd spoken to had written a book maybe you know in the past, but I think the, the first author with a new book out on the show. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. I'm delighted. Fantastic. We're a couple of happy guys. Look <laughs> at us. In the morning, no less. <laughs> yeah. Before we get really, really get going, I just, I wanted to congratulate you because I mean, Oddfish was a YA hit when it came out in 2008. And from what I've read over the, the reviews thus far, Dare to Know is doing very well itself. And I mean, having two well-reviewed books in a row is, is no small thing. Well, thank you very much. I only wish that they were closer together because Oddfish <laughs> came out in 2008. And then a long time went by and now Dare to Know came out. And I, I think I've changed a lot. The world has changed a bit, but I, I think the, the books will come more fast and furious now. Oh, I certainly hope so. Because as I mentioned, I, I enjoyed reading it. It's some comfort to me though, because my currently one and only book came out uh, five years ago this year. So, you know, it's good to know that there can be that gap and, you know, the next book can still be good. So that's, that's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I was wondering if you could maybe give our readers a sense of the plot of Dare to Know. Sure. So Dare to Know is a like science fiction or speculative thriller, or at least it's marketed that way. But it's kind of, as you've read it, a bit more of a, a long fever dream. Uh, um, <laughs> yes. And, and uh, but you can't put that on a dust jacket. Uh, um, but what it's about, it's about a world that's pretty much like our own, except for um, there is this company called Dare to Know that sells that can sell you the time and date of your death. And they're always absolutely accurate. And it was like a kind of a glamorous startup in the 90s. But now it's, it's kind of like anybody can have their time and date of death uh, read off. And our main character is a salesman, and he was part of the company when it started out. He was one of the people who was like instrumental in, in getting this technology off the ground. But his life has kind of taken a turn for the worse. He's uh, 
divorced and his he doesn't get along with his kids. That he's not really making as much money as he used to. He's looking down the barrel of middle age and wondering what happened to his life. And this must close sale goes very wrong um, in the first chapter. And he kind of gets into a car accident and he, while he's waiting for the tow truck to come. He decides to look up his own death date, which is something that you're not allowed to do if you're one of these salesmen. And he finds out that he had died 23 minutes ago. But he's not a ghost. He's still alive, but he's somehow mathematically dead. But the system is never wrong. So the rest of the book is him trying to figure out why this mathematics fails only for him. And it kind of leads to like a reckoning with his life and also kind of an exploration of a lot of like philosophical concepts of free will and fate. But also it's an emotional story about like the one who got away, like this woman that he loved and lost. And she and he calculated his death date but did not complete the calculations and she has his death date. And so he travels across country to see her to find out what went wrong. Did he make a mistake? And yeah, so that, that's what it's about. And listeners, I can tell you, if you think you know where that's going based on that description, you do not. So <laughs> <laughs> I love being surprised and very much was by, uh, by where dare to know, not, not just ended up, but sort of by the path it took to get there. And something I really loved, uh, the, again, a lot of things I liked about the book, but, that must happen sale you talked about in the very beginning. You know, that is someone who is, is buying the, the, the date of the death, buying this information in a coffee shop. Yes. And I just thought it was such a great commentary on how we can take almost anything, no matter how grand something is, how grand some development or some invention, we can make it small and petty and kind of sad if we try hard enough. <laughs> yes. And we're always trying. Uh, um, I, I think that's kind of part of what the, the book is about, like, or one of the inspirations for it was like, we live in this era in which like all like the most intimate details about us are just kind of data now. It's alienating. And so I thought like, what if like the, one of the most important and unknowable things about your life, the time that you die was just another bland data point. Um, and how would, how would that change society? How would that change people? The, this guy used to, it used to be a very uh, kind of almost ritualized and very expensive process that they did at a special office downtown. But now he's just like hustling for clients at a coffee house. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not what it used to be, which and, and it's, it's kind of like I was a computer programmer. And it's kind of based on my experience of like startup culture and, and right. you know, how the, the kind of rise and fall of companies and how things seem to start out in this blaze of glory and optimism. And then now it seems like the world, like a software engineering I, which I got out of, it kind of became this, it became this, at first it was like this, we can change the world kind of atmosphere. And then it just became this cursed zone for grifters and, and, uh, and, <laughs> right. and sociopaths uh, who are just like using <laughs> yep. the most intimate details about you to sell you things or spy on you or make your life worse. It's a statement on us. I think that um, that's the highest and best use of knowledge we can think of is to <laughs> sell it for advertising. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my grandfather, when the internet, he's, he's long gone now, but when the internet was first becoming a thing, he, he, he looked at me and said, I don't understand where does, how do you make money? And I, I think, you know, it's, it's just become this sort of like reflexive, well, we make money by selling nothing. You know, we, we basically, we sell the info so we can you know sell, then you buy, and then we sell that info. And it's, it's, it's sort of stuck in this, this not obviously not all of it, but it's kind of fascinating how we've gotten stuck in this, this loop or the internet has kind of ended up in this place. 
Well, there was a beautiful moment, I don't know, from like 1997 to, I don't know, let's say 2008, I feel or so, in which it felt like maybe 2010, it felt like the internet was, I felt it was a place of like possibility and exploration. And obviously, it mm. could still be like that. But it felt like all across the country, there were people who had made the equivalent of a Taj Mahal out of toothpicks in their basement. <laughs> and they're all emerging from their basements to show each other their Taj Mahals made out of toothpicks. Or, or like right. their, 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 their typewriter that they had programmed so you could play Zork on it or something. And, 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 all, and all these weird people were sharing their weirdness. And it was kind of awesome. And I loved that aspect of the internet, like the quote unquote sure. good internet. But then things started to take a turn. And, 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 and now it does not feel like that to me anymore. I don't know. Maybe I'm just old, but it doesn't feel like that to me anymore. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you make a great point. You know, I, Coincidentally, I was having this conversation with someone recently, and I, I sort of had a little bit of a rant about it on one of my patron shows. But I was thinking that with everything having become commodified the way it has, you know, the, the experience of sharing yourself on the internet now, it, it, there's a certain expectation in terms of presentation. You can't be some, you know, some ugly bastard like me out there showing you my, my typewriter when, <laughs> you know, there's an expectation of the quality of lighting. There's an expectation of... Uh, you know, the presentation and, you know, again, a certain aesthetic standard. I mean, you think about uh, stories about TikTok where they're throwing out, their algorithms throwing out videos if you don't have a really well curated space behind you. Uh huh. And it made me think that there are fewer and fewer spaces on the internet for that, which is, is kind of almost um, counterintuitive because that was the entire purpose of the place. And theoretically, the space is infinite, but a- as this has become more and more the the dominant way of, of, you know, being seen, we're all more and more people. I feel like are being pushed to the sides into these kind of liminal mm-hmm. spaces. You're kind of not in one place. You're not, you can't, you can't afford to be in one place. You're not pretty enough to be in another. <laughs> and so we're all kind of, yeah, you know, crammed into the, the, the internet's, uh, the hallway just outside the classroom. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it, I do wonder if that's going to lead to some other kind of, you know, some other kind of development, some evolution that allows for those places again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Anybody can still just like put up a blog, but nobody sure. cares about it anymore. The internet is so interesting because, I mean, obviously it started out as a military project and then it got taken over by a bunch of idealists who did cool stuff with it and like true like tinkerers. And then it became kind of commodified. But it, it's kind of like how like so many things, cool things happened in music, like with synthesizers and, and, and stuff like that. That was just right. a lot of it was like surplus army and navy radio equipment and uh, radar equipment that got repurposed and so like you can uh, like a lot of electronic music or like rock and roll and things like that all that came from just like this surplus military stuff similarly with the internet it kind of came from it's like this unintended offshoot of a military project but it's all it's it's kind of weird to see that like the genesis of all these things in the end is like this dark killing machine um (laughs) (laughs) in dare to know to kind of bring it to that and talking about technology, the main character to, to calculate somebody's death date, it's not just something that you find on an app or whatever. It's something that you kind of, you have to do the calculation by hand in this thing called subjective mathematics, which is involves this kind of interview. It's kind of like the Voigt comp test in Blade Runner, uh, but like <laughs> meets kind of like, uh, like weird surreal poetry between two people. And in this subjective mathematics, the more that you do it, the more you calculate people's death dates, the more you can sense the calculation of others, in particular computers, and, are, and, and soon you can't stand the way that computers calculate. It feels like 
primitive and brutal and stabby. And so our main character, he can't bear to be in the room with computers. The way they calculate feels bad to him. And that I, I wanted to give an emotional feeling of how I started to feel about them, you know, without right. saying directly, oh, I hate Twitter. That's why I hate computers. It, but like something more <laughs> yeah. ki- kind of like visceral and not dependent on the content, but just the very device itself giving you this uneasy feeling. And I think we're all, a lot of us are feeling that uneasy feeling right now. Uh, uh, but I wanted to put it in a way that that uh, is more in the body um, rather than us just thinking about it. Right. And that's something that stuck with me. I, th- I remember the, uh, I think at one point the narrator refers to it as chopping data. And bullying it around. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's really stuck with me. And um, on the subject of the the, uh, the subjective math, you know, there there's a, a place in the book where you Quite often, this happens because of the nature of of the the death particle and because of the way the the uh, calculations are found. You sort of um, illustrate the strange ways that science and mysticism sometimes yes. keep company, which is not something that I think uh, I, I think most people just don't think of it that way. But there's there's one quote I have here: We lit candles around the darkened room, standard operating procedure in the early days. The black candles, the carefully toneless repetitions, etc. We cut all that stuff out when engineering zeroed in on a purely mathematical method, and even I forgot how unsettling it could feel when we were first starting it out. It gets omitted from the history, so people think our algorithm runs on pure logic, but no. Something hungry and invisible around us demanded to be acknowledged and sated. And I'm, I'm really curious to know uh, where that comes from with you. I mean, I have some idea in having read you know, some of your other press clippings, but I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that here. Oh, yeah. So I was a physics and philosophy uh, double major in college. And so a lot of the stuff that I learned about was not just physics, but also the history of science. And when you look at the history of science, it's very odd because you take like the big pivotal people in science, like say Isaac Newton, you know, you think of him, you think, oh, gravitation, he invented the calculus, the three laws of motion. But that was like less than 10% of what he wrote. He was really into the occult. And he was kind of a figure who straddled the occult world and the new scientific way of thinking that was coming around. So a lot of his writings were about geometrical magic and alchemy and and uh, it's it, it stuff like that. And um, it, but then you looked at other people like Johannes Kepler. He made his money casting horoscopes. Um, his huh. mother was accused of being a witch. Even like you go back to the Pythagoreans, you think, oh, the Pythagorean theorem, but they were occult. They had particular weird beliefs. And so I found that a lot of scientists have this odd openness to the occult. Um, and it really came to a head for me when I found out about Jack Parsons, who is one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But he's also this dedicated occultist. And he was, he was a big figure in the U.S. space program. But he was a member of Aleister Crowley's cult. He did sex magic things. And then, you know, he blew himself up in his laboratory when he was 37 years old. But the thing I want to get at is that the history of science and the history of the cult are more deeply intertwined than we uh, than we might expect. And right. it's interesting to see. And maybe the kind of person who thinks out of the box, like you have to, to be like a great scientist, maybe they're, you know, more open to these ideas. But it's fascinating to see. Absolutely. I know a friend of mine uh, recently finished a physics degree. And mm-hmm. it's been interesting for me to note that the difference between the person he was when he began and the person he is now, because when he began, he ha- was very set in how he believed the world operated. After having finished the degree, it's been, again, fascinating to note that there is much more latitude 
he's that he's willing to give the the operations of the world. You know, he's willing to accept a lot more uncertainty than mm-hmm. he was four or five or six years prior. Has that been your experience as someone with uh, with a background in science? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a big occult guy. It makes me feel very uneasy, and I don't want to think about it. I mean, sometimes we <laughs> write towards our fear, and like definitely like fear of aging, fear of like who have I pissed off in my life, fear of like <laughs> right. friends that I've lost, um, but also just like fear of the dark, and and then right. like, you kind of write towards it and you explore it, and then you come away with something good. I mean, I grew up Catholic, and so there's very um, probably that, that's the only link between like modern times and like genuine paganism, you, you know, right. that there is. Um, it, 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 there's a spookiness about many aspects of it, or at least I felt that growing up. And, and so I think I was a physics major to run away in, in many ways from occult ways of thinking. Interesting. That I was like, I'm going to find out what's really true about the world. But of yep. course, modern physics is extremely strange. And if you take it seriously, kind of destabilizing. So I, I wanted part of this book to be about give you that destabilizing feeling that modern physics gives you uh, in, in some way. And it, it really, again, really works because there is this constant sense of, of, of sort of tension and dread and this, this sense that you are sort of at the, the frayed edge of the world. You know, that, that moment where you, you feel this... Uh, this sort of great and secret truth is is maybe right there, but it's also very frightening because yes. once you learn it, you can't not learn it. You know, you, you yeah. can't forget it. I guess is, is what I'm what I mean to say. I, I love the movies of David Lynch, and mm, I really yeah. wanted to write a book that felt like a Lynch movie. Interesting. And, I can see that. Yeah. And but the thing about Lynch is that he does things that you can't do on paper like long shots of empty rooms <laughs> or, or, or like, yeah. or, or he could do something that it feels like it's incomprehensible. Like the first time I saw a Mulholland drive, I was like, mm. I don't know what I just saw. However, it wasn't arbitrary. I could feel a hidden logic under it. And after sure. seeing it like five or six times and like r- reading up on it on the internet, I found like, okay, I think I'm starting to understand what this movie was about. And I love endings like that, like like the ending of Twin Peaks or something, I will think about the ending of Twin Peaks Return um, until I die. Uh, like I oh, will yeah. puzzle over it until I die. And that's the kind of ending that I love. Is it the kind of ending everybody loves? No. <laughs> um, no. But I, I, it was definitely the kind of ending that I wanted to write. And if you like to sit with mystery, that is the kind of book that I wanted to write. And again, it it worked. It very much worked. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of mysteries, there's two things I wanted to touch on. One, the book deals quite heavily with uh, the pre-Columbian civilization of Cahokia. Yes. That was located in the Midwest, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Southern Illinois, right outside of St. Louis. Right, right, right. Okay. So now is that something that you have a personal interest in or something you sort of uh, stumbled across while doing some research for the book? I didn't know about Cahokia until I was in my 30s. Which is a crime. So for, uh, for those of you who don't know, Cahokia is this pre-Columbian Native American city that was in, in the space outside of like what is now St. Louis. And the cliche about Native Americans is that they weren't urban. But in fact, there were Native American cities, and Cahokia was one of them. And I guess it's part of our racist education system or something like that, but we, I just never learned about it. From like uh, like about one thousand to fourteen hundred, 
Uh, there was a city that at one point was like about 20,000, 30,000 people, like bigger than right. London or Paris were at the time. And they had these like gigantic mounds that it's very difficult to understand, like how they were made. They had a, a very developed system of trade. Uh, they lasted longer than the United States has lasted so far. And yet... I, I learned all about, you know, Mesopotamia or, you know, or the Romans and the Greeks in school, but I never learned about the ancient civilization that was a drive away from my house. And yeah. that astonished me the way that we just cover that up. When I learned about that, I was fascinated. Another thing that was kind of fascinating about it was a large scale human sacrifice that happened there and um, that they dug up. And the thing is, like, we would never even have found Cahokia. Um, they, people knew that there were mounds there. People would find arrowheads, but it was when they set up the highway system in the 1950s that they, they had to do compulsory archaeology at any of the places. And then they found oh, it. And there was like already like a subdivision there. There, there, were like, <laughs> there were like swimming pools and like people's, you know, and deliberately just destroyed the mounds, did not care at all. And eventually that all got cleared away and they tried to restore it somewhat. And it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, and they're trying to preserve as much of it as possible. But in the archaeology, they found that there's this one mound, Mound 72, where like hundreds of people were killed. But it's not clear why. Nobody knows why. And it all happened like at the same time. And they used to have these big festivals in Cahokia in which like thousands of people would come from all over and they're all this eating and drinking and, and seeming kind of like spectacles. But we don't know why. And we don't really know either why Cahokia ended. Cahokia isn't even the name of the place. It, that was just the name of the tribe that happened to be in the area when some Europeans came by and said, what's this? And, and they said, well, right. it's not ours, but we're the Cahokians. It's a very mysterious place in America. It, it kind of just goes to show how we overwrite the past. And in many ways, our main character is like both obsessed with his past and kind of actively overwriting his past. And right. in the same way, this country is kind of actively overwriting its past and also obsessed with its own past. And I wanted to, one thing that sometimes it's fun to do in stories is like, as it is in the personal level, so it is in the cosmic level. And so I wanted right. to get that sense there. Right, right, right. I remember reading um, Ghostland by Colin Dickey. And he talks about how, and, and we won't dwell on this, but I, I'm, I do think it's an interesting idea. He talks about how this notion of the uh, Places like the Amityville House, where, you know, it's so say on built on an indigenous burial ground, and that's why it is X or Y. And of course, that is just patently not true. The Amityville story is a complete hoax. But <laughs> Dickie posits that one of the reasons this has become such a trope is because deep down, people know that the country was bought by blood. And yeah. so it's interesting that, um, you know, one wholesale part or one part of this is means we've lost huge swaths of knowledge. About places mm -hmm. that should be, I mean, Cahokia, given the scale of it, you know, that, that's, that's vital knowledge. That's something we should absolutely know. Yeah. But instead, it's, it's just lost. Yeah. I mean, the Native Americans are still here, but yeah, there is a cultural loss. And yeah, that's um, it. You, you don't want to think of Native Americans as like the elves and Lord of the Rings. Like, they're people <laughs> right, who are right. still here. They, they, they haven't, like, in an ethereal way, departed the land. And I was trying not to do that with Cahokia in this book, but there is sense in, I feel in this country right now, that feels like the final days of Cahokia. <laughs> like it, it, there, there right. is a kind of unraveling going on right now Absolutely. that, um, like who knows if we're going to last as long as the Cahokians did. 
Well, I mean, hopefully the sacrifices don't start. Let's let's just we'll say that. Let's fingers crossed. I, I, I think I think the sacrifices have been with us for a long time. I mean, the sacrifices capitalism. I mean, the sacrifices. You know, the, the, the clothes that we wear are are made by slaves. The phones that we use are you know made out of you know extractive technologies that rely on slavery. It's just slavery by a different name. Oh, that got that's deep. very true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, mo- moving on. But I mean. I, I agree completely, but uh, well, let's let's talk more about mystery. That's that's maybe yeah, a safer yes. place to hide. Another part that really really appealed to me was the flashbacks, which involve uh, the narrator going to a summer camp. Yes, where he makes friends with a really unusual boy named Renard. And yes, I don't want to spoil the nature of their relationship, but there was something about Renard that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, he's frequently playing a video game. Yes. The rules of which are, you know, long gone, but he claims that he is looking for the flickering man. And that's a character that may not even exist. It really it reminded me of those old urban legends about video games, you know, as I mean, some, some, some not so old, like, like the Sasquatch in, in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. But, you know, there's the, the old legend of that game, uh, Kill Switch from the late eighties. Uh-huh. It was said to be a, a Russian game that deleted itself once you finished it. And only 5,000 copies were ever made or, uh, Polybius, which was yes. said to be an arc, the arcade cabinet game that was some kind of government data harvester that appeared briefly in 1981. And I'm just kind of curious, what was your inspiration behind the flickering man? Cause that, that imagery has, has also really haunted me since finishing the book. Oh, thank you. So there was a game that I played obsessively growing up called Aztec and you can find it online. And that, that's the game that I'm kind of referring to. Um, with right. this this un, unnamed game and it, it's just like you're this kind of indiana jones like guy who's going into like this crudely drawn set of you know platforms to find a treasure and um i was obsessed with playing this game for a long time and then i found it again on a website that allows you to play like old apple II games and right. and, and, and and so i started playing it again after not having played it for like 20 years or so I think things become maximally creepy when they've just gone out of date. Like there's nothing creepy about a butter churn and there's nothing creepy (laughs) about a cell phone, but there is something creepy now about a normal rotary phone because it's a technology that is just past it. Like just a phone ringing in a room is feels creepy now. And similarly with video games, there are rarely urban legends about a new video game, or I guess there are with like Minecraft and Hero Brian and stuff like that. But it's it seems that like there is something creepy about a slightly old video game because the very premise of video games like, oh, this is the new thing. It's a computer. It's new. It's a video games in the 80s are particularly creepy feeling. The Polybius uh, thing, was that a urban legend that began in the 80s or did it begin in the 90s? If I, I had wonder. to guess, probably the latter, but I, I don't know enough about it to say yeah. one way or the other. So, uh, I, so I was playing this game and I started getting obsessed with it again. And then it started to change. And this is so hard to um, believe, but I would always just like go to this website and play this game. And then one time I started going to the website and I would go into the, uh, the place where the, uh, down into the various levels and there were no monsters. Usually the place just like full of monsters you had to defeat or kill or whatever. And I would just go and level after level was empty. And it stayed like that for a week. And I was like, why, why is this? And then a week later, I went back to it and all the monsters were back. And I wonder oh, if like wow. the person running the website saw that somebody was 
obsessively going and playing this game like, <laughs> like three times a day and just like, I'm going to mess with this person. Uh, if, right. if somebody comes in from this IP address, I, I'm going to give them, serve them up a different version of this game with all the monsters deleted. But it was very unsettling. Um, right. It's, it's, so the idea of a haunted video game, I mean, I'm not the first person to put it in a work of fiction, but sure. I, I think I definitely had an unsettling haunted experience like that. And it, it very much played into a lot of the themes of the book. And um, and when you're a kid, or at least in the 80s, you often played video games without knowing the rules because right. they're, I, you would play without documentation. You wouldn't buy it in a store. It would just get copied on a floppy disk from one of your friends, from a friend, from a friend. And so you just have to figure out how to play it. And sometimes you would not be playing it correctly. And, and later on in the book, the, our hero realizes he was not playing it correctly. Uh, right. um, that that gave, there there wasn't supposed to be any flickering man, and that's yeah. Without spoilers, that's kind of part of the the theme of the of the book. Right. It, it reminded me. There's um there's a game called uh, Depths of Fear. Nasso. Mm. It's an independent game, and the story of Renard and searching for the flickering man. This uh, reminded me of this game because I recall the description of it once, saying it's um it all seems kind of menacing and barely held together in a way that suggests maybe even the creators don't quite understand <laughs> what it is they've made. Yes. And th that put me in mind of, of Renard and the, the narrator kind of stumbling through actually really not only the flickering man, but that entire flashback set mm -hmm. in, in the summer camp in the 1980s, you know, that felt, um, I think more better than, you know, a lot of films recently have tried to capture that Amblin esque sense of, of, uh, you know, wonder and danger of, of being mm -hmm. a child in the eighties. But I actually felt that dare to know in those moments did a, a better job of that because Thank it's, you. it, it really, again, it felt like this bubble universe as when you're a kid, things do, you know, the world in a way, it seems like an adventure game set up for you, but you don't, mm -hmm. you don't have the instructions and you're <laughs> not really doing it right. And you know, yeah. you end up putting yourself in, in danger in ways that, uh, maybe you don't even realize till later. Well, what I wanted to, another thing I wanted to do, like, along those lines is, like, what you can't do in an Amblin movie or whatever is get the peculiar idiosyncratic way of thinking at that age. Um, and the kind of, like, there's a lot of things that we think that we don't, we only half think it. Like, if we said it out loud, we would know we were wrong, you know? Right. But, like, but, like, you have this half thought that always kind of occurs to you. And definitely before the internet, before you could fact check everything, you kind of lived your life in this kind of incomplete haze, especially when you're a child, you're just trying to figure out the world, but also yep. you have no place to go to figure out what the truth of something is. Like one of the things that I put in the book that I, uh, that, that I share with the main character is that I was terrified of the song, The Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Right. Um, because there's a lyric in it. It's like, um, you know, uh, out on the road today, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. A little voice inside my head said, don't look back. You can never look back. I remember hearing that. And I didn't know who the Grateful Dead was. So I was like, right. what is this satanic emblem that he's talking about? Why can't uh, I look back at it? What's going to happen to me? And it just seemed to be this like, normal, nostalgic song. And then this one creepy lyric drops right in the middle of it. And then he goes back to being a, you know, a middle-aged nostalgic guy again. And little things like that jut out in culture. And sometimes you maybe only really, because you, you have such a heightened sense of attention when you're a kid, you only really uh, 
you're only really susceptible to it then and you can feel this way and then it sticks with you for the rest of your life and um i wanted to give that sense and i yeah i think the amblin sense of like oh there's wonder like there's a spielberg shot of like you're looking up with your mouth agape at, at something marvelous is happening and there and that is a, a feeling of, of childhood too but i will say the best part of et is elliot showing his lando calrissian to et you know right. and that feels childlike and kind of odd and incomplete and weird in a way that that I love the movie, but like that that is the moment of it for me. And and I, right. it, it's a little moment that is kind of based on an odd way of thinking. There was something else you uh, another quote from that 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 part of the book. Uh, as you can tell, that one really that 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 part <laughs> of the book really kind of stuck in my head. But um, and it, a little bit goes back to what we were talking about: the internet and surveillance. Mm. Uh, the quote is: uh, "We weren't yet in the area of." Ele- era of electronic surveillance systems and ubiquitous cameras. In 1987, if you did something under the cover of night and got away with it, you'd really gotten away with it. And it hit me because recently I was watching a restoration of the uh, the 1978 film uh, Killer's Delight, which is sort of a, a um, loose take on the Ted Bundy story. Uh-huh. But, you know, watching the characters kind of moving around, you know, it, it just hit me how alone you were in that ah. pre-digital era. And I think it's something we've really become disconnected from. And again, it was, you know, as the narrator has this moment where he calculates his death date and realizes it's past, there was a sense of that pre-digital isolation to him. Was, was that intentional? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a moment in the late 90s in which it became impossible to ever be alone, truly alone mm. again. Because I, like, I remember in college, okay, it's Friday night. What am I going to do? Well, I call up my friends. Okay, the phone rings. Nobody's answering. Well, I guess I'll go down to like the student hall. Yeah. But nobody's there. Well, I guess I'm not doing anything tonight. <laughs> <This is, laughs> i You're just alone at that point, and it, you could force yourself to be alone like that, but it'd have to be a conscious choice. But that right. kind of just casual uh, loneliness um, is impossible now. I mean, you you have to you would have to make a specific effort to be lonely in that way, and that in that way, it's no longer the same. Then you're saying, "Oh, I'm taking a break from my electronics or whatever," and yeah. um, and and so that I wonder, like, what it's. I mean, I look. I have two daughters, ten and twelve, and it's odd to wonder, like, what's what it's like growing up now. Like, my twelve year old, she just got a phone. She's not really that interested in it. She uses it to text to say, "I'm coming home." Maybe she'll watch a video on it every once in a while. So I guess I'm seeing the, their last few years of when they can still be truly alone. Um, right. And, and, but I think loneliness is a beautiful thing. Sure. And I'm writing a new book and my wife's family has this cottage in Michigan. And she said, why don't you just go there for a week and just write? I said, great, thank you. And I went there and I was all alone for a week. And I did not use the internet. And I just sat there and wrote and I started to get that 80s feeling of right. true loneliness again. And it's a very productive and nourishing thing to be lonely sometimes. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think we're seeing that effect on popular culture. You know, I think that with the sort of truncating of attention spans and, and things like this, I think that's all a, a result of the sort of the constant stimulation. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to the book in a moment, but there was what you said about your daughters. I was, I was wondering, I wonder if maybe there is a point at which future generations will no longer be impressed by the novelty 
of all that digital immediacy the way our generation was. And I wonder if maybe they will sort of treat it as, you know, oh, okay, well, that's a thing. I don't really want that. You know, yeah. we sort of, um, you know, as we were sort of the, the one of the last generations who remember a pre-digital time, I wonder if they're going to look at it and go, Jesus, I, I don't particularly like this. I mean, it's possible because, I mean, when you think about cars, like my niece is like 23 and she does not have a license and she has no interest in driving. Now, maybe this right. comes in growing up in Chicago, but, you know, where it's it's not necessary totally to have a car. But the like, idea of not wanting a license and not wanting to drive is insane to me. <laughs> like, yeah. like, uh, uh, um, or, or And then similarly, I mean, a lot of people who are young don't have email addresses, don't communicate by email which yeah which baffles me there's articles about this and i and and i i've noticed it too like they just don't do email they do it all by texting or by social media and they don't have an email address they or they they never check it and so there are parts of technology that kind of grow up you become obsessed with it and then it does kind of fall away however i mean i'm not looking forward to when we all just have like you know contacts in our eyes that are blaring a- advertisements to us all the time. And when you wake up in the morning, you have to you, you have to uh, look at five minutes of advertisements before they unlock your eyesight. Uh, um, or, uh, 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 like that, I, I'm not looking forward to that. No, 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 nor I, nor I. That's the true Philip K. Dick moment. Yeah, is is it ever? Right now, he's uh, I don't know, chuckling or or crying softly. I don't know which. But uh, he's high on something. Whatever he's doing. <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, actually, one, uh, so as we get towards the end of things here, the, uh, speaking of high, there, there was a moment in, uh, again, in the flashbacks and, and I'm, I'm one of the reasons I'm focusing on the flashbacks because I don't want to, I just don't want to spoil the arc of the book. Well, so much of the book story is told through flashbacks too. Like, like there, there is a kind of the, the, uh, inciting in, in incident. And then it's a kind of like this weird exploration of the book in which there's these flashbacks that are kind of arranged by theme and they connect to each other in intentional ways. But uh, it, it, this is not Minority Report. Uh, um, it, 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 it's something, it's more like Mulholland Drive. And, uh, and, and so that, that is a, I, it's an expectation that people should have. But yes, what, what were you saying? There's, again, this is a quote. It was, uh, Renard and I used to talk about the vast invisible thing that permeated the country, the unseen evil thing that was always trying to speak. Back in the 80s, it spoke through Top 40 music on the radio. But times were changing, and therefore the devil's mouthpiece was changing too. Instead of the radio, now the vast, invisible thing spoke through the intangible data network we were building around ourselves. And the coast-to-coast number-churning specter of the internet didn't just talk to us. We talked to it too, feeding it for years, telling it all about ourselves, not only our mundane details, but also our secrets and deepest thoughts and fantasies. But this vast, invisible ghost hates us. The internet hates us, perhaps because it knows us. And it reminded me of, uh, a long time ago, I used to listen to the show, where people would call in and talk about their, uh, they call it trip reports. So they would experiment with hallucinogens or whatever. And they would talk about, you know, the unusual feelings or experiences they had. And a long time ago, this guy experienced, I want to say it was psilocybin, but I can't remember for sure. Uh, but he, he found that he was watching the, the, the show, the Simpsons and which is a pretty, obviously pretty innocuous show. It's been around forever, but he just had this sense of um, menace, the sense of menace. Like it was something he was not, a, it was not the programming itself. He described it as something underneath the programming. Yes. And I remember myself, you know, when I, the first time I experimented with, with edibles, uh, this is a long time ago, almost 20 years ago now, 
But I had a similar experience. Several of us were sitting around watching The Simpsons, and this this unease crept in uh-huh. at the programming. And I just wonder if that speaks to an elemental distrust of technology. Clearly, for you and your friend of The Simpsons. Of this, well, I mean, hey. <laughs> I, I mean, we need technology and, and we distrust it, but we need it so much and we use it all the time, but we have a bad conscience about it. And I, I think it's, we're, we're still fundamentally biologically these monkeys right and, <laughs> True, but yeah. we're playing with magic wands and and and, right. ma- and magical items and so we still think in magical ways and that's never going to be eradicated from us and right. so we we have these incredible devices and i think it's it's healthy and i think it's apprehending something real it's perceiving something real i mean right what if you ask a refrigerator what does it want I'm quoting somebody here, and I'm probably misquoting. If you ask a refrigerator what they want, they say things should be cold, you know. And if you ask a <laughs> you know a, a vacuum what it wants, says well the floor should be clean. And but if you ask a TV what it wants, says you have to stare at me all the time, and that's creepy, right? Yeah. Everything that it does is to make you do that. And so if a person told you you have to stare at me all the time, <laughs> you you would feel creeped out by it. So I, I think maybe that's what we're apprehending there. Uh, I have very, very, very limited experience with drugs. I'm terrified of them. Um, and so actually, speaking of The Simpsons, both with this book and with The Order of Oddfish, I've had people say like, oh my God, you know, that was so crazy. Like, you must have really been on something. Like, what were you on? And I remember there was a scene like that in the Poochie <laughs> episode of The Simpsons. It was like, what were you guys on when you wrote that? And the guy was like, the writer was like, rotisserie chicken and that, that, is, that is me that that is me i my uh, my drug is rotisserie chicken and a wonderful drug it is <laughs> <laughs> I, at this point in my life i would i prefer rotisserie chicken <laughs> well james thank you so so much for taking the time to chat it's my pleasure very very much enjoyed dare to know and listeners really make sure to check it out it's available uh everywhere now correct yes and also an audiobook and uh i i haven't listened to it yet but i heard a sample from it and it sounds great so if you're an, uh, a voice almost as mellifluous as your own brennan oh thank you you're too kind and uh where can everyone find you online jameskennedy.com is my uh website and uh i'm on twitter at i am james kennedy i am james kennedy also, I do a podcast called The Secrets of Story. You can find that on, which talk about like storytelling theory. You can find that, uh, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll, the 92nd Newbury Film Festival that I do, which kids make movies that tell the stories of Newbury winning books, uh, that's at 92ndnewbury.com, 92ndnewbury.com. And, and I got to say, those are so much fun. I've been watching a few of them and, uh, oh man, it, just the, the inventiveness of some of these kids. I love it. I, I'm particularly taken with the one that's a Charlotte's Web done in the style of a horror movie. Um, <laughs> you referenced this in an interview, and but I couldn't find the I couldn't find that one. Oh, uh, actually, if you go to the website and you click on Best of, it's one of the Best right? of videos. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And that's the ball game. Thanks again to James Kennedy, author of Dare to Know, for hanging out with me tonight. Dare to Know is available at fine bookstores everywhere. And you heard us talking. If you like David Lynch, 
you like the mysteries of the universe, you're going to want to give this a read. In fact, if you're also, if you're a fan of imagination generally, you're going to want to check out James's first book, The Order of Oddfish. It is a really great read. I'm working through it myself right now, and I could not recommend it more. Again, if you want to hear ad-free episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash truth. $2 a month gets you in the door, gets you access to bonus content when, they're, when it's available, and of course, as I mentioned, ad-free episodes, because who wants to listen to ads? Thanks again to James Kennedy for taking the time. Thanks to Quirk Books for making it happen. Thanks to Peter at Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Peter's music is released by Night Harvest Recordings. You can find more from them at nightharvestrecordings.com. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 